It truly is a privilege to be a part of this celebration today. It's deeply bittersweet as I watch friends and colleagues that I've worked with for decades moving into the next chapter of their ministry, uh, retiring, moving on to finding new ways that God can use them. Uh, this sermon is taken from the pastoral epistles, as Daryl said a few minutes ago, a message from the older evangelist Paul to the young man Timothy. But it's also a message, I think, for all of us that I hope you get. I will be using Doug as an illustration at certain points. <laughs> because, as he said, the target is just too inviting and too uh, helpful. But in reality, this is a sermon for all of us as we think about how we live our lives as disciples of Jesus. So I'm deeply grateful for the invitation to be back here with you at First Carrollton. As I told you the last time I preached here, this church was very formative back when it was downtown and the old building and Paul Morell was your pastor. I learned a lot about evangelism from being a part of this church as a sort of drop-in person every now and then. And I'm grateful to be with you today for this special celebration. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place. For we trust your promise that wherever two or more are gathered, there you'll be also. And yet, God, sometimes we don't get it. And so we ask, open our eyes that we might see you. Open our ears that we might truly hear your word. And then, God, strengthen our hands and feet that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. All this we ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share the happiness of your master. Those words were spoken by Jesus in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And yet, as I think about my life, as I think about anybody's life, aren't those the words you and I yearn to hear from Christ when we get to heaven? Well done, good and faithful servant. That really begins to put in my mind the question of, well, how does one measure a life? Maybe it's because I signed up for Medicare this month. <laughs> or I'm watching friends retire. But that question of how you measure a life, well, it's something I'm paying more attention to. Now, we all live in a world that is highly individualistic, that's highly materialistic, and so some of the measures that we absorb from other places are, well, how many years did you live? Living 90 years is better than living 15 years. Or maybe it's measured by fame. Has your picture shown up on the magazine cover at the checkout in the grocery store? Are you a celebrity that people are trying to follow you on Twitter and know who you are? Or maybe it's measured by money. What about your bank account? What about the size of your house? What kind of car are you driving? Have you been financially successful? Or maybe it's education and business success that you've achieved a certain level and degrees or position in your company. I've just begun reading a book by David Brooks called The Second Mountain. I'm not very far into it. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times, and he says that in his life, he focused for the first 60 years on all of those individualistic goals, and he was successful. Financially successful, famous. I've been reading his column in various places for a long time. 
He was married for 27 years. Um, he was successful, and that was a mountain he had climbed well. And then his wife left him. Then he realized that he had been so focused internally, he didn't have much of a family, and he was estranged from his children. And he began to talk about the fact that you ought to have a second mountain. He talked about happiness as belonging to the first mountain where you have lots of pleasure. And he begins to talk about joy as the deciding factor in the second mountain. I expect by the end of the book he's going to talk about the things that really make life worth living. And he says already... Joy comes from giving your life away. Well, duh, people. <laughs> Hasn't he read the Bible before this time? I don't know much about his religious life. But for those of us who are Christians, this idea that the life that is truly life, did you hear that in the text? The life that is truly life comes from giving your life away. It comes from following Jesus. It comes from the grace of God. It comes from setting out on a particular pathway that says, this is what life is really like. And yes, it's better to live 90 years than 15, but living 15 years of following Jesus is better than 90 years of pursuing the wrong goals. Yes, it'd be nice to have some funds, not for your own pleasure, but so that you can give it away and make a difference in somebody else's life. Your education ought to prepare you for service to Christ. That children's sermon, yes, I did pay attention, Doug, and yes, you did it all right. And if the people here simply took the children's sermon and went out and lived it, I'd be very happy. But I've got 20 minutes. I'm going to lay it on a little thicker as well, okay? <laughs> This whole point of life that is truly life and laying hold of that is really what the Bible's all about. And the New Testament gives you certain characteristics that are worth paying attention to. Now, in the passage that Daryl read a few minutes ago, 1 Timothy 6, there are these six characteristics, and really, I would love to have it as a six-part sermon series, okay? to really delve in deeply into each of those six words so that you really get a sense of it. But I'm going to touch on each one briefly because I think by focusing on those characteristics, we remind ourselves of what it is God's calling us to do and be. Now, quite frankly, some of you here today may not be Christians. And if that's true, I hope you're hearing a message of grace out of the music. Did you hear the song that you are who, you, who God says you are? You are freed in Christ. But then there's a journey that comes as God is going to work with you in a longer pathway. And these six characteristics are one of the ways in which that gets described. Let's talk for a minute about righteousness. Righteousness. For me, one of the most important things about righteousness that Christians struggle with is the idea that somehow we're supposed to love God 24-7, 365. And one of the hardest things for us to maintain in a modern culture is integrity. I don't know where you're going to be at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. 
But I hope wherever that place is, at work or at school or with family or friends or some other place, I hope you are the same person tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock as you are in church. That the values that you profess and the inspiration you experience here become the kind of thing that you live out wherever you're going to be. Maybe you're in business and you've got an opportunity to strike a big deal by lying. Do you tell the lie? Or do you take responsibility for your actions and tell the truth? Maybe your company has a choice between public good and lots of money. Do you choose the good so that your capitalistic enterprise is really all about making a difference and improving the, co- the, the world and the community that you live in? In other words, all the things we do have to be about loving God, even if it's not explicitly religious. For me, that's what righteousness is all about. Righteousness is all about that process by which we are who we say we are. That's one of the things I appreciate about Doug Miller. He is who he is. And he's the same everywhere. When you get to be a bishop, something really weird happens. You lose your first name. I was maybe 50 years old before I ever called a bishop by his or her first name. The respect for the office means that instead of calling me Scott, people called me Bishop by title. Well, one of the reasons I stayed connected to these other seven people here, including my wife, is that they all called me by the first name and they told me the truth. How many times has Doug Miller looked at me and said, Jones, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard in my whole life. Now, sometimes he was right, and I was pulled back from the brink of making a serious mistake. Sometimes he was wrong, and I went ahead and did it anyway and proved him wrong, and that was very satisfying to me. But the point being, this idea of integrity, of being who you are in all of the different settings, at work, in your family, at school, all those places where your values are driving you, not that you always follow them fully. We all make mistakes. As David explained in the song, The come sinners to the gospel feast is an invitation to all of us. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We've all got this journey we're on. But the commitment to righteousness and integrity is crucial. The second characteristic is godliness. One of the things that I hope you're getting here at First Carrollton Bible Study and other places is the idea that salvation is a journey And that God is at work through God's grace in helping you make progress all the way along. Yes, we're freed. Yes, we're forgiven. But that's not the whole of the journey. The journey is all about sanctification, about changing our hearts and minds and hands. Did you hear the children's sermon? So that we are more and more like Jesus. So that a year from now, we are holier and more close to God. More fully loving God and loving our neighbor than we are today. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's what I need. That's what you need. This idea of godliness as the goal of our lives means that each one of us needs to figure out how can God's love so shape our hearts and minds so that we're more the kind of people God wants us to be down the road than we are today. Doug told you that he and I taught confirmation together. I'll tell you one of the stories. He was not very godly. 
I was lecturing to the kids from the Prosper Church and the Salina Church about Jesus, telling them about who he is, that he's fully human and fully divine, born as a baby, died for our sins, rose on Easter. The lesson was on Jesus Christ and who he is and explaining all that. You know where Doug was? Doug was pastor in Salina, and McElroy Chevrolet was there in Salina, and old Mac was on Doug Miller's speed dial. He liked to trade cars faster than anybody I've ever seen in my life. I had three kids, including twins, an Astro van. Doug had an Astro van with less mileage than my Astro van. What was Doug doing? He was on the phone to McElroy selling my van. So that I would buy his van and he could get the new car he had seen on McElroy's lot. People, this is sinful behavior. You were driving it was, a wreck. It was not godly. <laughs> Shut his microphone off, please. I'm preaching. And I punished him by getting $100 more out of him than he was willing to pay for my van. But it all worked out. The point being, my friends, that part of being in a Christian community and having that integrity I talked about under the righteousness heading means that we can be real with each other. We can talk about our struggles. I hope you're in a small group someplace. I hope you're in a small group where you have to look your sisters or brothers in the eye and say, this is where I denied Christ this week. This is where I failed. This is where I succeeded. And share your victories. It's, then, it's that that we preachers have done in a small group, not only talking about the things God has accomplished in our ministries through us, but also admitting, she's, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to get there. God, give me some wisdom. Give me some advice. And that's where these three brothers and sometimes their wives have given me that kind of inspiration to figure out how best to lead the church and be faithful Righteousness, godliness, faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for. I think all of us have got to have faith in Christ. That's what keeps us on this journey. It's that relationship to God that we celebrate here in worship, and it strengthens our faith and helps us remember who we are and whose we are. But for also for all of us, we need to have the faith that says God's at work and showing us new things to do and new places to be. Each one of us is called to be in ministry for Christ. And that sometimes means taking a risk. And the only thing that allows you to take a risk is that you trust, believe, have faith. All those words mean the same. That God is calling you into this and that you're prepared to do that well. I think that's been a characteristic of Doug Miller's ministry. Is that he's always had a vision of what God might do in the church he was serving or in the larger denomination. He's always been willing to say, God's out there calling us to be someplace else. That's what he's done for my life as my friend. That's what he's done so many churches. That's what each of you is called to do. So that whenever you get to a place of life when you're retiring, it's not that you are now freed up to just live for yourself. If you're a Christian, you're never allowed to do that. Retirement simply means you're freed from the daily grind of work so that you can volunteer at Vacation Bible School at First Carrollton this summer. <laughs> do you hear me, people? 
And you might think, oh, I can't do that. My guess is there's something in that comprehensive system of VBS where you can make a difference. And maybe it's simply arranging for the snacks. Maybe it's being a teacher. Maybe it's being the teacher's assistant to be that loving grandparent. My kids were raised in small towns. And it was the fact that they were in churches where they had adults who weren't related to them that cared for them and nurtured their faith and were surrogate grandparents that made a difference. So my challenge to you today is, where is your faith leading you to be in service in the days to come? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love. We come back to the great commandment. One of the things, one of the books I have written, the most boring book I've written, was on John Wesley's conception and use of Scripture. And if there's anything I contributed in that too long tome, it was the idea that we Wesleyans read Scripture as a whole. We look at the general theme that comes through it. And the general theme that binds all 66 books together is this theme that a God of love cared enough about his creation not to give up on it and has invited you to love him back and to love your neighbor as yourself because if you love God with everything you've got and God loves everybody, then you better love the people God loves. You get the connection, people? And so this idea that where hearts are to be so filled with love that we love everybody. Now, I'm a bishop in the United Methodist Church. You may have heard there's a little bit of controversy in our church about human sexuality. We have made the decision as a general conference to be traditional in our approach to that. But what has bothered me the most as a leader in the church has been listening to good Christian people demonize and vilify people who disagree with them. My teaching in my own annual conference has been consistently to drive people back to John Wesley's sermon, Catholic Spirit, where it says we've got to have a little humility that I might be wrong. I might have misjudged this. But we also are called to have a Catholic or universal love for everybody so that I have spent hours and hours over the last several weeks reaching out to people that I disagree with trying to love them well, trying to understand them. In a church the size of First Carrollton, there are going to be people here who irritate you, people you really don't want to go on vacation with. <laughs> and yet they're your sisters and brothers in Christ. And the question is, how do you love them well? That ought to be the hallmark of Christianity. When Christianity was first spreading in the Roman Empire, the thing that made us different from the secular world is that everybody who was discarded and discounted by Roman culture, the slaves, the orphans, the women, the aliens, the people from other nations, those were the people that the Christians embraced. And so we took care of the orphans. We took care of the widows. We took care of the poor. We fed the hungry. We clothed the naked. We did all those things because the love of God forced us to do that. The next characteristic in this list of six is endurance. I did talk about fighting the good faith. It is in the text. Paul said he had lived his life fighting the good faith, running the race, finishing the course. 
And one of the things Christians sometimes don't understand is that just because you've committed your life to following Jesus doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. One of the books I've written has a chapter entitled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Because we think that if we follow Christ, God ought to bless us and we ought to be wealthy, healthy, and happy. When in reality, we live in a sinful and broken world. And sometimes it's our own mistakes that bring things on us, but sometimes it's just the way life happens that we struggle with stuff. And one of the things that we Christians have got to do is teach the quality of endurance. That even when you go through a bad happening, you lose your job, your spouse cheats on you, your child dies prematurely, you're facing a debilitating illness. All of those things are simply opportunities for God to work. It's not God punishing you that bad things happen. It's an opportunity for God's grace and strength to help you overcome it. Read Romans 8, the last verses again where it talks about the fact that in all things, God is working for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And so when the bad stuff comes, it's not a time to lose your faith or to blame God or turn bitter. It's a time for you to turn to your Christian brothers and sisters and say, help me walk through this. Help me see God's grace in the midst of this difficulty. Doug struggled with various illnesses He's faced some tough times. He's retiring earlier than I think he should, to be quite honest with you. And yet watching his endurance and dealing with these illnesses and these difficulties, I've admired him. Not that he's always been faithful and happy and done it exactly right, but he has endured and dealt with his stuff in a way that's admirable. My friends, something bad's going to happen to you someday. It might be facing your own death. It might be a spouse. It might be a family member. It might be some other financial reversal or some other problem. In other words, the question is, are you going to have the kind of faith to be certain that God loves you and that God's going to get you through it so that endurance is something that you can do? The last point is to, if it's uh, endurance, is gentleness. I'll tell you how Doug and I became friends. Back when I started ministry, I was a task-oriented guy. I was pastor of a church. I was finishing a PhD. I had three young kids. I have a wife who was leaving me with alone with the kids three nights a month to go work for her job. You know, this was, I had a lot on my plate, and I'm a task-oriented guy. So I'm in my office, and Doug knocks on the door of the office and comes and sits in my chair and talks for 45 minutes. And I'm thinking, who is this guy and why is he wasting my time? (laughs) You see, for those of you who don't know the geography, Salina is straight north on Preston Road. And to get to the hospital in McKinney, he had to come through Prosper. And so he literally goes off the road for a mile and stops at the church to talk to me. And I'm irritated as all get out. (laughs) Who is this guy? Why is he wasting my time? And on his third visit, God finally spoke to me. I'm pretty dense sometimes. And God said to me, Scott, this guy might be a friend. And more than that, you might even need friends. (laughs) And when God speaks to you that clearly, all of a sudden, 
it breaks through, and Doug and I became friends. Now, that's the gentleness he's got, the attention to relationships. Because I really think that when you give your life away, it's all about embodying the love of Christ in the lives of other people. I'm more gentle now than I was 30 years ago when I was so thick-headed. I'm more willing to listen and give myself. And God's worked on me in that way. But my suggestion to you is, if you're like me and so task-oriented, if you're busy with all kinds of important things, remember David Brooks, who climbed the first mountain successfully but it's the second mountain of relationship and love and gentleness that counts. One of my favorite movies is Mr. Holland's Opus. I go back to it from time to time. The story of Glenn Holland in this movie is that he really wanted to write the great American symphony. He was going to compose the best piece of music ever. But he had a wife and a new baby, they needed to be supported, and so he takes a job as a high school music teacher just to, you know, uh, keep the money coming in, and he would write this symphony during the summers in his free time. But he discovered in teaching that there were all these students who needed his attention. One young woman in particular was playing the clarinet so badly it was almost a, a painful experience to listen to her. She lacked confidence. She lacked self-esteem. But he decided to give her one-on-one -on -one music lessons. The movie progresses, and eventually the school board cuts all the funding for the music program in the school, and he's forced into retirement. As he's cleaning out his office, he hears some noise in the auditorium, and his wife and son say, well, let's go check it out. It turns out the whole town has gathered to honor Mr. Holland. And the young woman who had been the insecure low self-esteem, bad clarinet player has become the governor of their state and the mistress of ceremonies at this event. And in the closing tribute she gives to him, she says, Mr. Holland, you have achieved success far more than fame or money. Look around you. Everybody in this room has a life that's been touched by you. We are all better people for having known you. Mr. Holland, we are the notes of your symphony. We are the melody of your opus. We are the music of your life. Friends, my challenge to you is to think about your opus your life. I trust if you're a Christian that you love God. But I'm also asking if your love of God so spills over that your family, your neighbors, your fellow church members, the unbelievers you come across during the week all hear from you the love of Christ and the care that you have for them. That's how you measure a life, is by love of God and love of neighbor. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your love, which has changed our lives, which has brought us into the life that is truly life. God, we are so grateful for what you've given us. Help us take that gift, Lord.
and pass it on. That indeed your love might so fill our hearts that it overflows and changes the world in which we live. So that we know your love has changed us and we can love as you have loved. All this we ask in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.